Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those who record, whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. Now, is this blessing only for the Jews, or is it also for the uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, we have been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith. But how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised? Clearly, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham had already, already had faith, and that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous even before he was circumcised. So Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have faith but have not been circumcised. They are counted as righteous because of their faith. And Abraham is also the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised, but only if they have the same kind of faith Abraham had before he was circumcised. Clearly God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. If God, God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift. And we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses. If we have faith like Abraham's, for, for Abraham is the father of all who believe. That is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Even when there is no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about a hundred years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. He was faithful, or he was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too. Assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. Thank you for reading the Word of God to us this morning. Kurt, uh, just a special note. Do you know that next week we're going to be celebrating together with Kurt? And it's, uh, his ordination is going to happen in our service next week. So that's, yeah, isn't that something to be excited about? We're, uh, that's funny. I always say things wrong when it comes to ordination. I say things like, uh, he's getting ordained or uh, we're going to ordain him. Those are not really accurate statements because ordination is the recognition of what God is ordained. It's human recognition. So it's like, a, it's like we've, we're recognizing that God has placed a call on um, Kurt's life. God's placed a call on all of our lives, but it seems very specific that in Kurt's life, that call has been to serve the local church 
in the capacity that he does. And so we're really excited about next week. It's not going to be our whole service, but it'll be a part of our service, and then he is going to, he's going to speak afterwards. We're going to have our regional director, uh, the great Jordan Gatsby, the great Gatsby, I call him. He's coming down to, uh, to help us with that, and uh, it's going to be a great uh, Sunday of celebration. So here's my request about that. Would you, if you think of Kurt at all this week, would you not just think of him, but pray for him that he will experience a greater sense of anointing in his life? Anointing means being set apart for a special purpose. And it includes the idea that God empowers you for those things that he's called you to. And so uh, we're going to be celebrating next week. But would you pray for him, not just think of him, but also when you think of him, pray for a greater anointing and a sense of that anointing in his life. We're excited about what God's doing in in Kurt. And uh, after next week, you can call him Reverend Kurt. So that'll be extra fun. I know on our team, we're going to be using and abusing that title all the time. (laughs) But uh, excited stuff. Uh, My name is Steve Atkins. I'm the lead pastor here at Hillcrest. Hey, if you're a part of our online family and you've joined us, I'm going to give you a fun assignment to do while I get people in-house to do an assignment. So uh, we're talking about raising money for Kettleston Camp, and if you are online, I'd love if you just jump on into the comments and tell us if you've ever been part of a Christian camp. Have you ever gone to a Christian camp? And if so, could you tell us which one? So there's an assignment for those of you who are online. Uh, I'd love to uh, see those results uh, back uh, later. How many of you have been part of a Christian camp? Ever gone to a Christian camp? Ever attended one? Okay, that's great. How many of you have gone, ever gone to a Kettleston? Okay, because that's the one we're raising funds for. Okay, quite a few. That's awesome. Well, the assignment in-house is, if you have a bench Bible in front of you, would you, would you reach over and grab it? And uh, I think I, yeah, reach over and grab a bench Bible. And we're going to, I want us to practice using uh, the text of Scripture as we walk through today's sermon. So if you grab that bench Bible and turn to page 913, 913, which is Romans 4, page 913. So if you're not as familiar with the Bible, 913 is the easiest way to get there. Well, it's probably the easiest for all of us. But Romans chapter 4 is where we're going to be reading on that page. So look for the big number 4, and then we'll start with uh, verse 7, which is where, actually, we'll back up to verse 6, actually. So I hear those pages ruffling. Give you a few more seconds to find page 913 and Romans 4. Oh, while I'm doing that, I should say a big congratulations to Ron and Val Carpenter. They got married yesterday. Can we have a big hand for them? Now, the, the truth of it is I think they got married in COVID, but you know what it was like getting married in COVID. It was you and the preacher, and that was about it. Uh, so they had a big wedding yesterday, and it was really exciting, and I think it warmed all of the hearts of the people who were there. It was pretty awesome. So congratulations, you two. All right. Romans chapter 4, verse 6 is where we're going to begin. It says, David said the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. So this is a little bit of what I was talking about last week. We were talking about the idea of justification, uh, God uh, um, giving or um, 
erasing our record of sin from our account and then adding to our account his righteousness. So it's not just that uh, the transgressions are forgiven, sins are covered, and that he won't count the sins against us, but also he is crediting his righteousness to our account. So I used the illustration last week. It's like you open your online banking and you realize that your mortgage and all your loans and your credit cards have all been paid down to zero. And then you look at your credit, uh, at your check or your uh, checking account, and it says unlimited. That would be the, that's the, uh, the the illustration I was using. It's that he, God has not just wiped away our sins, but He has made us completely righteous in God's sight. Um, so, is this blessedness only for the circumcised? Verse nine: Is the is this blessedness only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? So, before we find out the answer, let's talk about circumcision. Uh, and some of you are saying, please don't. Um, all right. So did you know, did you know that one-third of all the males on planet Earth are circumcised? Did you know that? One out of three in the entire planet. Now, it really varies country to country or area to area. If you took, like, uh, the Middle East and Africa, they have very high circumcision rates. Uh, some countries like Nigeria, which is a huge country, and Iran, Iraq, countries like that, they have 98, 99% circumcision rate amongst males, which is almost everybody. Uh, if you actually took a boat across the Atlantic and you went to Central and South America, you'd find almost the opposite. Uh, in Brazil, the circumcision rate is about 1.5%. So it's like here you've got almost everybody circumcised, and then across the water you've got almost nobody is circumcised. And then nations, very interesting. Um, you've got those ones. There's about 50 countries in the world where the circumcision rate is over 90%. Um, the USA is pretty high. 80% of males in the USA are circumcised, 80%. So it's, by it's the vast majority. That's a bit of a decline from the numbers it used to be. It was higher than that in years past, but the rates have come down. In Australia, it's 60%. In England... It's much lower, it's 20%. And the two biggest countries in the world, in India and China, the rate is just slightly under 15%. And there are uh, some Scandinavian countries where the rates are, again, like Central and South America, they're close to zero, and they're trying to outlaw its practice of circumcision. So that's not even just, they're not doing it, they're actually, there's actually a movement against it. By the way, the Jewish people who live in those countries are protesting that because they're saying this is a big part of seeing of being Jewish people is to be circumcised. So um, it's an interesting thing. There's groups that say circumcision is the way to go, obviously, if one third of the world is doing it. And there's ones who say that's not the way to go. And uh, so you want to take a guess what the rate is in Canada? Anybody just take a guess? 75 percent. You know, it's actually quite surprising it's way lower. It's 30%. So our American neighbors, 80%, we're 30%. So if you are circumcised, go to the States and you'll be in the majority. And I mean, that's a big country, so that's a big majority. <laughs> but if you are uncircumcised, stay here and you're in the majority. And uh, it's just funny how those things work. It's sort of like the medical systems of certain countries come to adopt certain practices. And so there, there's, there's uh, a wide variance of views on this. Uh, the World Health Organization, and maybe you say boo, hiss after you hear that. I'm not sure if you love them or don't like them. doesn't matter. We've heard a lot from them in the last two years. But a few years ago, they were recommending in Africa 
that the circumcision rates be increased. And, that's a, and in Africa, the rates in a lot of Africa are already quite high. But they were really encouraging that as one of the measures to counteract the spread of HIV and AIDS. That was a recommendation of the World Health Organization within the last decade, that we, that we should have more circumcision because it would limit the spread of HIV AIDS. So there's also other medical organizations who would, who would say the opposite of that, as you found out through, we all found that out in the last two years. There's lots of groups that go both ways. But when my oldest son was born, and it was a new experience for us, so I was talking to our doctor who had delivered our son, and he uh, was was, we were talking all things baby, all things baby. And I think my, at a point where my wife was out of the room, we talked about circumcision, because uh, I, I, I had to recount this story to my wife later. And I found out that my, our doctor, who's a gr- good doctor, did a great job in the delivery, we really liked him, he was actually anti-circumcision. He, he really was questioning whether it should continue to be a practice in the world. And uh, so I was sort of, chatting with him about it, and it made me go back to the Bible. Because after my conversation, I thought, well, what do, what do I really think about circumcision? So I went back to the Bible. I looked in the Old Testament how God gave this to Abraham and then the Israelite people as a sign, as a, as a symbol that they belonged to God. And so I thought, okay, probably the first thing I believe about circumcision based on what I read in the Old Testament is that circumcision is probably not a bad thing. It'd probably be hard to be a believer and a follower of Jesus and, and, and trusting in what the scriptures say and say that here's God that he gave them a bad thing. So I probably at the baseline have to say it's probably not a bad thing. I, I don't think I could accept that based on what I read in the Old Testament. But then I wanted to read in the New Testament to see uh, what I would come to conclude here. And that's where I actually was reading these verses 20 years ago. So let me read, read them to you. It says, we have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So some people would uh, equate the Old Testament practice of circumcision with the New Testament practice of baptism. And there is some sort of correlation. It's not complete and entirely. But so they would uh, embrace that they were followers of Yahweh, of, of the one true God, the God of Israel, who was the God of the world. They embraced that, and then as part of that, in their law, the, God, the, the instructions that God had given for Abraham and his descendants, they would be circumcised. And it happens when you're little. You're on the eighth day. A boy is circumcised. Um, so it wasn't the thing that made them right with God. It was the thing that showed that there was already that reality in place. Similar to baptism in the New Testament. When a person gets baptized, that's not the moment they become, uh, they become gods. They are become, you know, belong to God. They are showing that that's already happened. And that's the way that we go public with our faith. Christ has called us to go public with our faith through baptism and declare externally an internal reality that's already happened. So circumcision has a similar, had a similar effect. And then it says, so he, Abraham, is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised. That's good news for 70% of Canadians 
You don't have to be circumcised to be the, for Abraham to be your spiritual father. In order that, the right, that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised. That's good for 80% of Americans and, 20, and, 70, and 30% of Canadians, right? Who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So the faith that our father Abraham had, had before he was circumcised. That's the key phrase. He already had faith before he was circumcised. And that was, uh, circumcised was being circumcised was a follow-up to that. So, Abraham is the father of the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Have you ever heard that? I mean, if you grew up in church, probably you did hear the song. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I'm one of them, and so were you. So let's just praise the Lord, right arm, left arm, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? Have you heard, how many of you have ever heard that song? Am I just singing to it? Yes, okay, some of you have heard that song. If you grew up in church or Sunday school or went to some summer program, maybe you heard this song. And um, I think it's like it's the hokey pokey for Christians is what it, it, what it is. And um, I, uh, I told my Sunday school teacher that. She was wanting us to sing this song, and I told her it was hokey. And um, it got bad. Uh, she insisted, and then I dug in. I don't know how old I was. I'm guessing like 10 to 12, somewhere in that age group. And uh, I told her, this, there's no spiritual value to this song. I said, ah, I mean, there might be some other churches in town that sing this song, but we shouldn't be singing this song. And um, anyhow, about that time, she was fed up with me and sent me upstairs to sit with my parents in the adult Sunday school class. I'm just telling that story because my mom's here today. Um, Just to remind her, I wasn't always an angel. (laughs) No, she knows. Daniel's her favorite, I know. Anyhow, but he is. The father. Father Abraham is the spiritual father of all who believe. Because it was with Abraham that the, the covenant of grace was established between God and man. I mean, there was ones who went before who were righteous. Noah was righteous. There was Enoch walked with God. There's different ones before Abraham. But God was starting a new thing with Abraham. God was, God was uh, establishing the way in which people would be made right with God through him. And it was something that happened before he'd done anything, before he'd, he'd been circumcised. So what do we know about the faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised? Well, verse 13 tells us this. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. But through the righteousness that comes by faith. Well, let me just back it up right here because it's a pretty amazing thing. He received the promise that he would be the heir of the world. There's several uh, neat things about being an heir as a follower of Jesus. Um, one thing is we will inherit the earth. Now, there's a lot more to this. This is a whole other sermon to preach. But, you know, in the future it talks about the, the city, Zion, coming down to the earth and we'll be there and all this. And, and there's lots of debate on is that a new earth is it this earth? Lots of Christians have different ideas about that and, and different theologies. But there's, we will inherit the earth. That's in the Beatitudes. The, the meek will inherit the earth. Those who follow God will inherit the earth. Well, also, the biggest inheritance we get is we get God. 
we'll also have glorified bodies. There's so many different things that are part of our, our inheritance yet to come, things that uh, will be part of our experience. But it wasn't through the law that Abraham and his offspring, that's followers of Jesus today, received the promise that, they, that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. Because the law brings wrath, and where there's no law, there's no transgression. Have you ever played a board game or a card game? And you said, ah, I think we got the rules. Let's just play. And then later on, and you play, and maybe it goes good, or maybe it doesn't go good, or the game doesn't seem to make sense. I don't know. But you go back, and you read the rules. Have you ever done that? And realized you were playing it wrong. In fact, you were, bla- you were breaking some of the rules of the game. Have you done that with Monopoly? I think Monopoly's got the most house rules of any game. It's like some houses, how many of you have played Monopoly before? Quick, quick. How many of you, you can't buy any properties till you've gone around the board once? Is that the rule? Some, okay. Okay, and how many of you, you can buy properties right away? Okay, that's right. Uh, but I think the rules are you can buy them right away, but then some have the house rule you have to go, you can go around. And what do we do with Park Place? Well, in our family, we just, every time you had to pay a fine, it went on Park Place, so it was like winning the lottery when you landed on it. How many played those rules? Don't think that's in the official rules, but we, we make our own rules. And you know what? That's humanity. We make our own rules. We just say, no, I'm just, I think this is good. I, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. But when the law comes along, here's the thing about the law. He, Abraham was not made right through the law. And he didn't receive the promise through the law. But the law has a very specific purpose. The law shows you how you fall short. The law shows you that you're a sinner. I mean, you just take the Ten Commandments, like, you know, worship God, no other gods before me, uh, don't take the name of the Lord God in vain, uh, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, um, honor your father and mother, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. I always think covets, you, you feel like you're doing good on some of the big ones. I have not murdered, I have not committed adultery. And then you get to don't covet. And it's like, it's, God's actually wanting my heart to be pure? Oh my, I'm in trouble, right? The law shows you all the, which, all the ways in which God's righteous standard is, is up here, and we, none of us can reach it. That's what it does. It shows us that we are all condemned if it was up to just our righteous action. None of us are righteous on our own. And so it's not through the law. So how could you be righteous through the law? Well, um, some would think, well, if I kept the law in every way, all the time. And if you could do that, I suppose that would work for you. But we can't do that. And that's what Romans says again and again. There's a couple, let me just point out two things. I didn't get to go through Romans chapter 2 as thoroughly as I wanted to when I was going through Romans chapter 2. And there's a section in there that I didn't get to, and it basically is saying things like, you know, if you, it almost says, if you keep the law, you'll be righteous. And you can get your hopes up when you're reading that and go, oh, so maybe I could be that one who just does everything right and, and I'll be righteous with God based on what I did. But then you get to chapter 3, or actually the rest of 2 and 3, and it's obliterated. Any hope of passing that test is shattered. So if you ever read chapter 2 and say, oh, it looks like Paul's contradicting himself. Well, if you could keep the law, if you could live perfectly, if you could live as per- with perfect obedience to God, just like Jesus did, well, 
then I think you'd be righteous. But no one can pass the test. No one can actually do that. Here's another place where you might find, you might say, oh, this might be a contradiction. If you read the book of James and you get to chapter 2, he'll talk a lot about uh, not just being saved by, you know, faith, but you need works too. That's what it sounds like. And let me just give you a quick, I shouldn't go into this one because this is a whole sermon on its own, but I have a quick one on this one. When Paul's looking at faith and works, he's looking at it from the perspective of an initiator. He's like, I want people to come to faith. And so I'm going to explain them the basis on which they can be made right with God. And so he says, it's not through works. You can never be made right with God. That can never, based on your works, that can never be the basis. Because none of us can live up to that perfect standard. So it has to be by faith. It has to be by grace. First, it has to be by grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. It has to be by what God did, and we receive it by faith. So God's grace He's willing to give us his salvation, and we receive it by faith. So those are the flip sides of of the coin, right? Just like works and law are the flip side, right? God also gave us the law, but we cannot, as sinful humanity, possibly measure up with the law. It's It's not a way that we can get to God. We have to come by faith. So Paul, when he's talking about faith and works together, he's saying, I want to explain to you the basis of getting right with God. It's 100% of faith. It's not faith in anything else. It's 100% by faith. But he goes on in his teachings to talk about that that faith is meant to turn into good works. It's meant to result in love. It's meant to result in all sorts of good action and obedience to God and all these different fruit in our lives. He talks about that. But he says the basis is not works. Right? So he's, he's dealing with people's wrong idea, understanding of what their good works would do. James is on the other end of the, uh, the spectrum where he's, he's, he's talking about it from this direction. He's saying, well, some people say they have faith, like, oh, yeah, I believe in God. But there's no evidence on the other end. And so he's saying, where's the evidence? So you say you have faith, but there, there's, there's nothing changed in your life. You know, he says even the demons have a, a, a type of faith where they believe in God, but it doesn't make them happy. It makes them shudder because they realize he is going to bring judgment into their lives someday. And so he says, I don't want you to have the faith just as, that has a mental assent of who God is. That won't save you. I don't want you to have a dead faith that doesn't actually turn in, that doesn't have any fruit at the other end. And so James, from this perspective, he's talking about a, a wrong view of faith. That faith, even though it is by faith alone, that faith just stays alone. There's nothing else to it. No, faith leads to works, right? So, he, so again, Paul is saying faith is the basis. That's how you come to God. And then works will be the outcome. And James is saying the same thing, but from a different perspective. He's saying if I see someone and they say, oh, I have faith, but there's no outcome, then I would say that the evidence isn't there to match, you know, the, the, the basis. I hope that makes it clear. Anyhow, I don't have enough time to do any more with that. But it's through faith. It's not through the law. When people encounter the law, here's one from the Old Testament. Joshua, he told the people, don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. 
Like keep telling it and retelling it orally to your children and, and as families and read it together publicly when you come together in, in the, the tabernacle. Years later, the Israelites, of course, did a terrible job of following up on that. <clears throat> Different generations just totally forgot about that. Years later, there's a king that comes along named Josiah, and his story is in 2 Kings 22.11. I'll just read one verse. It says, when they, so what happens was they were renovating the temple, and Josiah had given some money to have this happen. As they're renovating the temple, they discover the book of the law. It's like it had been lost to them. There's a whole generation that didn't, hadn't been reading the book of the law. The temple was full of now idols that were, you know, the Ten Commandments said you should never worship idols. They were in the temple now. So they're cleaning out the temple. They find the book of the law. And the priest of God, it's crazy, priest of God, he's like, hey, guess what? It'd be like if I didn't talk out of the Bible for like several years and then I said, hey, guys, I found one of these books. I think it might have some interesting things to say to us. So he brings it to the king and he reads it to the king. And Josiah, just read you out of that, that one verse. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He tore his robes. And then after he did that, after he wept and he tore his robes as a sign of humility before God, he he said, we need to find somebody who can tell us. Inquire of the Lord on our behalf. Because this book is saying that if we don't obey the law, if we don't follow this, that we are in grave danger and judgment under God. And so they go find this prophetess, Huldah, and she comes back with this word and she says, because you repented before God, because you turned from your sin and your wickedness, that Israel will be will be, uh, Judah would be spared for many more years, especially in the time of Josiah. And it says that nobody, nobody in all the kings of Israel before or after turned to God like Josiah did. That's what the law does for us. It shows us our sinfulness. Now the right response should be like Josiah. We should realize we have dishonored God. We have disobeyed God. We are out of alignment with God. And it is a terrible place to be. And it is totally right for God to judge us, to bring his wrath upon us, and so to call out for mercy. And, and that's what they did. And the, one of the greatest revivals in the history of Judah happened under King Josiah because he repented. So, verse 16. Back to your Bible here. Hope you, you still have it open. Verse 16, therefore the promise comes by faith, so, it may, that, so that it may be by grace and be guaranteed. That's great. To all of Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, the Jewish people who are following the law, but those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. So this, there's a promise that comes by faith, and it's by faith so it may be by grace. Because if it was by works, then it would just be by the law. But it comes by faith so it may be by grace so that it may be guaranteed. Faith is not just one ingredient to getting right with God, it's the ingredient. It's the ingredient. It's the sole ingredient. If you're saved by works, like if, that, if you think that's how you're getting it, you're never sure. You say, I, I, I'm, I'm doing enough good stuff to counteract the bad stuff, and at the end, God's going to put them on a balance, and hopefully they'll be more good than bad. You are never sure. There are a ton of religions where they have a path towards God, but they leave you unsure. You don't know where you're at with God. You hope, you put in the effort, but you don't know. And that's not how the Bible makes it clear. The Christians are supposed to 
understand their lives, right? I uh, think of the end of the book of John. These things are written that you may know. We have the Bible so we may know, so we can have assurance, so that we can have confidence. If you are saved by works, your, your behavior, man, you are not going to walk in security. Security is found by faith in Christ. So I may fluctuate. Boy, I do. But Jesus never fluctuates. My good behavior ebbs and flows. His righteousness is absolutely 100%. He perfectly obeyed the Father. He never sinned. And that's the righteousness that's applied to my account. So I can sing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. So faith plus works is not the right equation. If, you had, if your works were a part of saving you, well, you'd, it would lead to boasting. It would also lead to insecurity on your bad days. Speaking of good and bad days, I think our lighting system is having a good and bad day. So when you, if you look to your own behavior, your own good works, instead of the works of Christ, that's a recipe for insecure living and great discouragement. And so one of the best things I can tell you is look to Jesus again and again and again and again. If you look at your own performance, you'll either be arrogantly proud or super, super discouraged. But if you look to him, if you look to him, if he's the source of your faith, then you'll be encouraged because he doesn't fail. He doesn't falter. He doesn't have a bad day. He is pure, perfectly righteous, and he's applied that righteousness to our account. Verse 17, as it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. He's our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being the things that were not. Now, you could, two ways to think about this. I think Abraham would have thought of it maybe two ways. He would have known the creation story, and so he would have thought, oh, the one who brings things out of nothing, who creates out of nothing. And so that would have been one thing to, you know, God calls things into beings that were not. But he probably was also thinking about his physical reality. I'm like 100 years old. I'm too old to have a kid. And my wife, she's too old. She's a little bit younger, but she's still too old for us to have a kid in the natural. This is, God is going to have to give life to the dead. He's going to have to do that if we're going to see this promise comes, come to be. Now, it's interesting is that God is the one who gives life to those who are dead spiritually. And the writer of this whole book is Paul. And he knows that because he was dead spiritually. He was very religious. He was very passionate, trying to serve God. But he was opposing Jesus in every which way. He wanted to stamp out the name of Jesus, to eradicate it from, where, from, from his nation. He was dead. And Paul is the one who became alive. So he knows this personally. I was dead. I was dead spiritually to God. And he has made me alive. Not my good works, but he's done it. Verse 18, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said of him, so shall your offspring be. So contrary, so what does it mean against all hope? Against all hope. Well, I mean, Abraham couldn't conceive of how they could con conceive. 
right? He couldn't conceive of how they could conceive a baby. Like, how is this supposed to work? No idea. So you say, well, is this, what is this? He, he's no idea how this can happen, yet he believes. And so is this blind faith? Is that what this is? No. Let me just give you a, a distinction. Blind faith is if I climbed up on the roof of this building and said, I'm going to fly. I'm just going to jump and I'm going to fly. And, you, and if you were my friend, you'd probably ask me, you know, what's the reason that you believe that you will fly when you jump off this building? And if I said, oh, no reason, then you say, that's blind faith. That's blind faith. There's no reason behind it. There's no reason for, for believing that. But Abraham wasn't exercising blind faith. He believed it because God said it. He believed it because God said it. So he believed for a reason. Because God had made it clear that it was, it was to happen. And he believed. You know what? Jumping off a building for no reason, that's pretty crazy. But you know what else is sort of crazy? It's doubting God when he's already said it. That's crazy. When God has said it, and yet we don't believe it. We should be confident in the one who brings life to the dead. And Abraham was. And he became a spiritual father to many nations. Again, the many nations who have come to faith in Christ, the people from all sorts of nations who've come to trust in Jesus, they are, they, he's their spiritual father. They can trace their lineage spiritually back to him. But it's because he believed in the one who brings life to the dead. Verse 19, without weakening Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promises, promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. This is why. So what did Abraham believe? What did Abraham believe? I, I think there's three things he was trusting in. One, he's trusting in God. He's trusting in God. That's the first thing. Very simply. In the person of God. That's what it says earlier in verse 17. He's, he's the, he is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. So Abraham just simply believed in God. And then he believed in the power of God. Abraham believed that God had the power to do this thing that he had promised. He trusted in the promise of God. So he trusted in God's person, his power, and his promise. And that's why it was credited to him as righteousness. And the words it was, verse 23, the words it was credited to him were not written for him alone. This is really good news for us but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him and who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So, this is a promise for us too. This is a promise for us too. For those who have a faith like Abraham's. And what is it? 
It's just believing God. It's believing God and what he promises. So Abraham had a promise. We talked about it last week, that the specifics of his promise. You know, you're, he said, I don't have any kids. I don't have any offspring. When I die, uh, the serv- my main right-hand man servant's going to uh, inherit everything I have. And God talked to him and said, look at the stars. And he said, so shall your offspring be, as numerous as the, as the, as the sky. And Abraham believed. And because he believed God, he was, that was credited to him as righteousness. That's how he became right with God. You know, God has given us promises to believe. Maybe not the same ones. Maybe not a promise that when you're 100 or when you're 90 or whatever that you're going to have a baby. If you come and tell me that today and you're that age, I'll probably doubt it. Or I'll probably say, let's put that promise on the shelf and let's see if God brings it to happen, Right? Don't maybe paint the crib room yet. I don't know. The funny thing is about hearing God is there's a, it's good to have some safeguards in that, isn't it? Other Christians you can check things against. Other people who can bring confirmation or, or say, hey, hold off on that. But when you have a sense that it's, it's God and it's his direction and you're walking it out with wisdom and in community, you should have confidence in God. Let me give you some promises to believe. First, if you're, if you're just sort of, um, if you're checking Christianity out, or you're just on this journey and you're not totally sure where you're at right now, let me give you some promises that you could believe. Romans 10.9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and it's not just that you can mouth the words, but you're believing in your heart. There's an internal reality that matches that declaration. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that what, what God says about Jesus coming to die for our sins, taking our sin upon him on the cross, and then rising again in victory over death and your sin, that that's true, that that's, that was needed because you know yourself to be a sinner who needs salvation, but also it was enough. It was enough that simply by trusting in what he's done for you that you can be made right with God. You'll be saved. You'll be saved from two things. The outcome of our sin, separation from God. And the, and the, and the, the thing that we're facing right now, the power of sin. Right now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, the Bible says sin is your master. It has an extra ability to dominate in your life and dictate living for yourself. You say, I don't live for myself. I I do good things. Fair enough, but you're fighting uphill against the power at work in all of humanity. And God wants to break that authority over your life. He wants to break the power of that over your life. So you could be set free. And he wants to make you his own. He wants to bring you into his family. He wants to make you a son or a daughter. His son, his daughter. And the promise is, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. It's not just that I believe in Jesus, that he exists. It's that he's Lord. He's Lord of everything, and he's, I'm receiving him as my Lord. Then you'll be saved from separation and from sin's power over your life or sin's dominance. Let me give you one more. 
promise. 1 John 1, 9, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you receive Jesus for who he is and for what he's done in your life, if you believe on his name, you believe that he's done what needed to be done to save you and that you trust in that for your own salvation, he will make you a child of God. He'll make you his child. He'll give you that right. I have a cousin, and this is her favorite verse, and she, I've told you this before. She works in a women's prison in Edmonton as a volunteer, and she goes in and she shares this verse with woman after woman after woman. Their lives are a wreck. And she comes in with the hope and the promise that they can be children of a very good father who loves them and died for them and wants to redeem their life from the pit. He hasn't come to load them down with more shame. Sin, sin has shame attached to it. It just comes part of the package. He wants to remove the sin and shame out of their lives and give them a brand new way to live. And she brings that hope into the women's prison again and again and brings them back to this promise. You can be a child of God. You can have, be, have a right standing with him. If you're, in, if you're listening to me right now and you say, I, I want that, I I'll lead you in a prayer of commitment, but really it's the cry of your heart out to God that says yes to what he offers. It's that internal believing in the heart in who he is and what he's done for you. But I'll lead you in a prayer that can help us to, to, to put that into words. And can I ask you, if you're in the congregation this morning, just to repeat this after me so uh, we can say this verbally today, and if there's someone in our midst who's saying that for the first time, then what a miracle. Dear Father, Thank you that you love me and that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin and shame. I put my trust now in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Help me live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, I have a few promises for those of you who are already believers. So if you just committed your life to Christ right then and there, these are for you. And if you've been a Christian for 40 years or more or whatever, these are for you. Let me give you four. And one of these might be the one you need to hang on to today. And this is how I'm going to end my sermon today. Just listen. And maybe one of these you need to just jot that down or put it into your phone. First one, Romans 8:28, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who've been called according to his purpose. So when you're in a situation, you're just saying, God, what are you doing? I don't know what's going on in my life. What are you doing? This is the promise. God is working for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Maybe you need to hang on to that today. Maybe you need to speak that back to God. You need to speak it to your own heart. God is working You know, I'm working for the good of my kids. Not perfectly like my father in heaven is, but I am working for the good of my kids. might not be the good they want. They they want more screen time. They want more sugar. So it might not be the good they want. And God's goodness in your life might not be the good that you're craving, but he is working for your good behind the scenes for those who love him, for those who have been called according to his purpose. So maybe you need to hang on to that today. Maybe you need to say, thank you, God. You're working for the good 
this, what I'm facing, it doesn't feel good. It feels bad. But you're working for the good behind the scenes. Maybe this is a promise you need to hang on today, to trust in his goodness towards you and that he is working. He is working. He's working for your good. Here's another one, Matthew 6.33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And this is in the context of provision, right? Of the, the daily needs that we have. And in that passage, in, in Matthew 6, it talks about God will provide our daily needs. We need to trust him with that. And so now, and, and have a, an orientation towards seeking his kingdom first, making that our, our main priority in our lives as his followers. And trusting him with those other areas. Doesn't mean you don't work for, you know, earn a wage or, or that you just, you know, sit back and do nothing. But that you're trusting him. Because there's so many factors beyond your control, isn't there? There's so many factors beyond your control in the world and in, in, our, in your life. But trust him with that. Trust him that he's your provision. He's your provider. You can trust him to meet your needs. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So trust him for, for provision. Maybe you need to hear that today. Maybe you're in a spot where it's like, I don't know how this is going to work, and I don't know how these needs are going to be met. Start seeking him. Seeking him as your king. That's seeking his kingdom. And his righteousness. Seeking all the things that, you, that he is about, and that he wants in your life. And then trust him with those other things as well. Two more. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And this is for you if you're in a fight against your own sin, right? In your struggle against sin, it's getting real, and, it's, and you may be very discouraged. No temptation has overtaken you, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. God, here's another provision, not maybe your daily needs. This is a provision for when you're in a war with the sin that rages in your life. That habit, that heart attitude, and you feel like you're not winning or, or you don't know how you can win. He will provide a way of escape. He'll provide a way to endure. These are his provision. When you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. And he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Hang on to that when you're in the struggle against sin. When your heart's being overwhelmed with emotions, maybe bitterness and resentment or unforgiveness or whatever it is, cry out to God. Cry out to God in that moment. Cry out for the way of escape. I've done that before, especially in that area of unforgiveness. When I couldn't forgive, I've cried out to God. I've told him that I can't forgive. God, help me. And he's done the transformation in my heart that I needed in the moment to be able to forgive. So when you're tempted, cry out. He'll provide a way. He will. John 14, 1 to 3. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I, I, I put this one in here because I thought, you know, some people are, uh, are, are, are looking at the reality of death and the life to come a little bit more than maybe some others are. You're thinking a bit more about it than, than maybe you were before. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. So you don't need to be troubled about what happens after death if you're a believer. If you've put your trust in Jesus, if he's made you righteous, when you die, you stand before God. You will stand adorned, arrayed in the righteousness of Christ. You won't have to wince back because of your sin. You'll stand in his righteousness. And he will take you to be with him. Maybe it's a verse you need to take. Some, maybe you know somebody who's close to, to death and they're a believer and they're just having a moment where they need encouragement from a brother and sister. Maybe you need to take this verse to them and just go to them and say, you know what? This is what he promised. He's prepared a place for you. And he will take you to be where he is. It's an incredible thing that we have in the body of Christ that we can take these promises and we can, we can speak them to God and we can speak them to our own hearts and we can speak them to each other to bring credible encouragement into our lives. Just like Abraham, we're believing in the promise that he's given us. We're believing in all of who God is for us. And he brings life into these dead bodies. He brings life into empty ways of living. He brings life into people. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and life to the full. That's what he wants to do for you today. Let me stand with you. Just stand. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your great and precious promises that are in the word of God. And we, we see your heart towards us through them. And we, these are things we can hang on to when we're in crisis, things we can hang on to when uh, things just seem topsy-turvy in our lives. Lord, we thank you for who you are in our lives. First of all, that you are our Savior. There's lots of blessing that flows out of that. There's lots of other blessing that we could attribute to you in our lives, and we thank you for those things. But first... Thank you that you dealt with the biggest need in our lives first, our need for a Savior. Our sin problem was the biggest thing, the biggest need, and you dealt with it head on. You took the full brunt of what our sin cost you. You drank the cup of wrath that really was meant for us. You took, you died the death that we deserved, and you lived the life we couldn't live, and you were the perfect sacrifice and you took all of our sin and shame upon yourself so that we could have your righteousness in exchange. So thank you that you've, you've done this for us. Thank you that this is our reality and that now we are, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are the righteousness of Christ. Your word says those things and so Lord we want to stand in that every day. Operate out of a place of assurance, not insecurity. Operate out of a, a, a place of confidence not doubt. We want to believe in what your word says about us. So Lord, again, give us faith to believe. Lord, you gave us faith to believe, to come to you and, and to become yours.
But our whole life is by faith. We haven't stopped exercising faith. You're just showing us new places to apply it in our lives. And so I thank you for that, that there's areas that maybe our faith really hasn't touched yet, but we've come to, but you're showing us more and more areas where we can say, I can trust God here too. I can trust God in this. God is faithful. He has the power to accomplish it. He's promised it, and I'm going to hang on to that promise here. So I thank you that you, you made that a possibility. That we're, Abraham was the first one in that long lineage of the covenant of grace, but we have been included. Jews and Gentiles, circumcised, uncircumcised, old and young, male and female. You've included us all. And so, Lord, we just want to walk in this. Give us, give us faith. Increase our faith. We believe. Help our unbelief, Lord. Let us walk in faith in who you are. Let us walk by your promises each and every day because you have the power. We're fully convinced. Or maybe we'll confess we desire to be fully convinced. God, work out in us a greater and greater faith in who you are and what you've done. Thank you for your goodness to us in your name. Amen.